0: The Bane Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, telegram just in from the sentient asteroid momastides. Dear mom, stop. Humans not nice, stop. Hit the space pipe where they live, stop. Banged it and made a pretty vibration, stop. Humans use space pipe for nests, stop. Humans don't behave like us, stop. They just do things, stop. They came at me, mama, stop. I got hit by them, stop. Not nice, stop. Humans not nice at all, double stop. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. All right now. Welcome to the Bane Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. This time we have a discussion with Travis S. Taylor and Jody Lynn Nye on Moonbeam, their new young adult novel set on, wait for it, on Earth's moon. It's about a group of kids led by mad scientist Travis S. Taylor, I'm, wait, I mean Dr. Uh, Nathan Sparks, Who have a YouTube channel where they do all kinds of cool moon stuff, but danger strikes and the team of nerdlies has to band together and act quickly and smartly to deal with a sudden sunspot blast on the moon's far side that has nearly fried a telescopic station that's being built there. Hey, Tony Weiskopf, publisher of Bane, sits in as host on this one, and I got to watch for once. So thanks, Tony. Plus, we continue our complete audiobook serialization of the Aiden Universe novel Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Now here's the news. Hey, a heads up for August. The next entry in the Monster Hunter series is rattling at the gates and ready to burst out or and to go. This is Monster Hunter Siege by Larry Correa go big or go home, when Monster Hunter International's top hunter Owen Zestava-Pitt was given a tip about some hunters who had gone missing in action, he didn't realize their rescue mission would snowball into the biggest operation in MHI's history. Their men are being held prisoner in a horrific nightmare dimension, and the only way to reach them is through the radioactive ruins of a monster-infested war zone. Oh, yes, it's D-Day at the City of Monsters. Monster Hunter Siege, book six in the Monster Hunter series will be at booksellers everywhere on August 1st, 2017. This is a discussion with Travis S. Taylor and Jody Lynn Nye on Moonbeam, their new novel for teens of about 12 and up, including us adults who are still filled with a sense of wonder now and again. Bain publisher Tony Weiskopf hosts the talk.
2: I'm Tony Weisskopf. I'm the publisher of Bain Books, and I am your guest podcast host today. Uh, we're going to be talking about Moonbeam by Travis S. Taylor and Jody Lynn Nye, and I'd like to welcome Travis and Jody and uh, the cover and interior illustrator Dominic Harmon to the podcast. I'm going to go ahead and read your uh, read your bio, bios, and then we'll then we'll jump into the questions. Um, Travis S. Taylor, Ph.D., is the co-creator and star of the National Geographic Channel's hit series, Rocket City Rednecks, and uh, has been seen on the Weather Channel's three scientists walk into a bar. Uh, He's a physicist who has worked on various programs for the Department of Defense and NASA for the past 20 or so years. His expertise includes advanced propulsion concepts, very large space telescopes, space-based beamed energy systems, future combat technologies, and next-generation space launch concepts. Uh, Taylor's also the author of the Pulse Pounding, cutting-edge science fiction, uh, the Tau Ceti Agenda series, which includes One Good Soldier, Tau Ceti Agenda, One Day on Mars, and Trail of Evil, as well as his groundbreaking Warp Speed series with entries Warp Speed and the Quantum connection um Jodie Lynn Nye is known for her numerous works of science fiction and fantasy, including An Unexpected Apprentice and its sequel, A Forthcoming Wizard, Applied Mythology, Advanced Mythology, and others. She's collaborated with the New York Times bestselling author Anne McCaffrey on The Death of Sleep, The Ship Who Won, Duna, and other novels, and with another New York Times bestselling author, Robert Asprin, in his Myth series. She lives in Illinois with her husband, Dominic Harmon. He is an illustrator and all-around nice guy. He is best known for his science fiction, fantasy, and horror book jackets and CD covers. He has won many awards for his work in the U.S. and the U.K. He has worked for many acclaimed authors, such as Terry Pratchett, Philip Pullman, Ursula Le Guin, Clive Barker, Stephen King, Naomi Novik, Eric Brown, Ian Waits, Ian Watson, Arthur C. Clarke, and Frank Herbert, to name a few. Very, very impressive. Um, So I want to welcome everybody to the uh, Bain uh, podcast. And uh, we're, we're going to talk about uh, the book. We're going to talk about um, the cover art, and we're going to talk about uh, collaboration um, and the interaction that you guys all had with each other. Um, so, so first, a question for Jody and Travis: uh, How did you guys come to collaborate with each other? <laughs>
3: well, it all started at a baby party. We got to talking about young adult fiction, and that we were both interested in doing it. And we we hadn't really exchanged much in the way of uh, talk before that, but sort of uh, found common ground very quickly and went downstairs to uh, Kelly Lockhart, Gary Poole's basement and started talking. And before you know it, we had a, had a plot which we proposed to you, and uh, while it survived some changes, uh, that's that's where it started. Yeah, I, w- I would say, uh,
4: Joey and I started talking probably about, uh, three years ago. We were originally, uh, thinking about doing a, uh, a young adult series based on one of my previous TV shows, and then, uh, when the show had run its course, we had to kind of stop and reboot and think about what we were doing, and while we've been percolating on ideas and trying to get something together the last couple of years, it was, uh, then at that main party, when we st- actually sat down together for a couple of three
3: hours, it was probably three hours wasn't it, Jody. And, it could and, it could easily have been that way. Time just sped by, and yeah, I, I just it, remember the talk, not uh, not the time. Yeah, we sat we sat down and uh, and, and pretty much brainstormed through
4: the whole party, uh, coming up with mm-hmm. ideas about the, this this concept of having a a, a a young adult book based on the first city on the moon with a uh, uh, reality TV kind of aspect to it, and, and it really started resonating, and, and having these young kids doing the adventure, it sounded sound like it be a lot of fun.
2: So so I will ask you, what, what made you want to do a YA novel rather than a novel targeted towards adults?
3: I think it's an underserved market, uh, there, there is a lot of magic box kind of uh, science fiction available to kids that doesn't really have science in it. and I'd, I'd wanted to write uh, young adult fiction. Some people think because of my style that I already do write young adult fiction, mm. so thought I just might as well make it true. But Travis had some really great ideas, and it, it, it was it was starting to click very quickly. So it was nice to find somebody who had the same ideas that I did with also the positive aspect of science fiction. There's a lot of dystopia out there, Yeah. but positive fiction, I think, is is very important. Not everything should come with the destruction of civilization as its beginning.
2: So uh, th- that's one of the aspects that, that I really enjoyed about the book, is is that it's stories about the, the first human colony on the moon. Um, and I, I really enjoyed getting the tour of the colony and and, and, and getting to know more about that. Um, so, so tell... T- Tell us more about, about the hard part of this. What, what, what is so hard about Moonbeam? Where, where, where does the science come in?
3: Yeah, Almost so, right away. Well, everything, Alan, everything's dangerous. Everything about being on the moon is
4: absolutely dangerous, right? You, uh, the, we've sent 12 people to the moon so far that's actually made it there successfully. And one on the, on the second trip on Apollo 12, uh, Alan Bean fell over uh, on his back while they are trying to drill a hole into the surface of the moon six inches deep. And he fell over, and when he did, a lot of people watching on the news thought it was funny, but the people in uh, Mission Control gasped and were scared to death because had he damaged his suit or had something happened when he was injured, uh, he was three days' travel from the moon in a very harsh environment, and he could have died from the simplest things. And so the moon is extremely, extremely harsh and dangerous environment. Space is... Is not an easy thing to overcome, but it doesn't mean it can't be overcome, and someday in the future, not too far, hopefully, into the future, people that, that walk general lives, you know, that aren't like the top 12 astronauts in, in the, on the planet, may actually get to go to the moon and have to start learning how to tame it. When the West was finally tamed, you know, the first few that went out there were the you know the explorers, but then it was just regular people who blinded in their Conestogas kind of and and traveled all the way across the, the country to to uh, tame it, and so that's kind of what we're seeing here is the the people who decided to uh, climb across the Gulf between the Earth and the Moon and start taming it.
2: And and it's about that that time period uh, too that, that your novel is set, and that's that I think is just a really exciting time period, and um, I, I, I really had a ball uh, reading it. Who did who did you have? Well, and let's let's get back to this question. What what in your background uh, training made your collaboration such a good fit?
3: We had a common interest, I think, in making a positive story more than anything else. And I wanted to approach story. I don't have the kind of science background that Travis did, so I was uh, relying upon him to be able to bring that in. I bring I bring storytelling. I bring character. And I am not afraid of technology. I've, I've, worked, for, I've worked as a technical operations staff in a television station, helped build the station from bare boxes and, and walls. So throwing concepts at me just makes me more interested in it. And I think that I, I approach, and because I, I'm not a scientist per se, I would, uh, I would have the same sense of wonder as the kids do in reading about some of these things. And I could approach it from their point of view as well.
4: Yeah, let me let me add to that a little bit, uh, Tony. So as uh, we would write the story, Jody would do a lot of uh, think about you know what the characters would be thinking and feeling and sensing at the moment, and and the thing I would be thinking about is well, what would they realistically be being exposed to? Yeah. And you know I've done a lot of uh, experiments and 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 a lot of analysis and study in my career, or whatever about. And I've studied a lot about the moon. In fact, my last Ph.D. was uh, the topic of it was the main topic of the book Boombeam, you know, building a, a big radio telescope using the, the craters on the moon. And so I studied the environment in detail, what it would do to spacecraft equipment, what it would do to the astronauts, what it would do, what it's really like and what's really happening there on the moon on a daily basis. And that's what we don't really know, what the average person doesn't get to understand or get to feel. You know, they only see things in movies. And a lot of the movies don't get it right I mean, they don't really care about doing the diligence of what it's really like it's just, just for show and we wanted to take this as close to reality as we could with our abilities and with the understanding we, we have and uh, I think we got pretty close and, and I think between you know mine and Jody's collaboration on it I think you can kind of get a sense of what these kids would be feeling. You know, like they're camping out on the moon out in the middle of a big expanse with nothing as far as you can see, but, but lunar wreck, but then the earth in the background, there's a sense of agoraphobia and, 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 and awesomeness that, that would overcome anybody.
2: And and I, talking about visuals too, that that's uh, you also worked closely with Dom to make sure that the, co- the the cover illustrations and the interior illustrations were as accurate as possible. Uh, Dom, what, what what was that like?
3: Yeah, it was
5: great. Um, when I first started, um, uh, we was first I was discussing about um, the front cover. Now this would be the the first one, which is the aerial view of the city. Yep. And we were pushing towards more of a sort of a NASA type concept really there of course i had to have a little bit of artistic license because if you look at the the original front cover which is now the frontispiece i think you would probably end up losing a lot more of the detailing around the um the the, the shadow side of the city so i wanted just to have a little a little bit of extra light there so you can see a little bit more detail now of course if this was actually on the moon right now you'd probably lose a lot of that so that's the only sort of artistic license i really wanted to add but i really wanted to make sure it was trying to be as realistic as possible when just, just the, the way i trying it a to approach yeah exactly yeah so the aerial view really helps it gives it some drama and you can really get to see all the detailing of the city as well and how it's all spread out like a grid um if you see some of the um some of the detailing of sure the uh, the satellites and the, the the main peaks of the buildings as well
2: and and i think so they to
5: try and mm-hmm. achieve that
2: the the incredible sharp edges too really get that 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 sense that we are in a different place um, get, gets that across. Don uh, Don's referring to the, uh, the two, two different two different versions of the covers that we had. Um, the original version was deemed not uh, YA enough uh, by our sales force, and so they sent it back to us to to rethink it. And so I set Dom the the very difficult task of. Uh, creating yet another cover for a book that he had already done a cover for. And he uh he came back with this beautiful concept uh with our main character uh in silhouette and the moon on uh which is the final cover art that that you see now. So thank th- thank you, Dom. I appreciate that. <laughs> oh,
5: sorry. Right. Yeah, I mean I, I think sorry. I can was can just going to stop? say um Oh yes. Oh sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, thank you. I just wanted to say to add the human element to the new cover. I think that made all the difference.
2: J- Jody, was that your impression
3: too? I, I think that it. I, from the point of view, we went to the Texas Library Association show, and people kept stopping dead in front of the new cover. And I, I, wow. really, I know it was trouble, but but the efforts were well worthwhile for the the reactions we were getting. No, it's fantastic. I, I absolutely loved, I mean,
5: this was a, such a great challenge to actually reimagine a cover that we first worked on and take it in a completely new direction. Now, obviously, you do still have the elements of the city within the shape of the, um, the main character's head, so that was carried on through, but I'm, I, was, I was so pleased how the, the new cover came out. It was like a really fresh um, new take on um, what we've already done, basically, which I was really pleased with.
2: Now, th- this book also has interior illustrations, which we don't usually do, but I thought uh, it lent itself uh, particularly well to that. Uh, there were there were some characters and some situations that the characters get into where they are looking at things on a screen. Uh, we wanted to be able to show them what they were looking at, and uh, Dom, Dom also did, did those interior illustrations. And I kept on adding more. <laughs> <laughs>
5: Jim. They were great fun. Yeah, I loved doing the, um, trying to visualize the actual, um, the virtual 3D so you, you could imagine it um, like you could almost spin it with your hand. And uh, there's some of the smaller il- uh, illustrations within the interior illustration, which I wanted to try and achieve that.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think I think we really got there. We we really got the feel of what these graphics are going to look like in the future. Jody and and Travis, can can you tell us a little bit about the the characters and the the, the reality show that they're they're involved in that brought them to the moon?
3: Well, we start with Dr. Bright, who is a little bit thinly disguised my collaborator, <laughs> and uh, perhaps just a little disguised, who is. Uh, reaching out to young scientists travis yeah so uh, you know when when i did
4: uh, uh rocket city rednecks uh we kept telling the producers of that show that there isn't really a show out there that's going to grab a hold to kids uh that do science that it's, it's like they're starving to death for it and there's nothing out there the only thing out there is, is bill nye and and he took the road of being goofy. And I don't think that, I mean, that's okay. Young kids really, really, uh, you know, they kind of connect with the goofiness. But other kids, once you get to third grade and on, uh, they, they are, they're more serious. I mean, they, they want I mean, to have fun, but they don't want the goofiness to it. And I, can't, and I kept telling them that there's all these kids from third grade to high school that they're, they're thirsting to death for someone to show them how to do cool stuff and to enjoy cool stuff with. And they need a Dr. Bright, a, a science show guy who's an action-packed kind of guy. He's uh, fun, and, and he's, it's exciting, and he's not boring them to death like they're in a classroom.
3: Mm. We're, like talking young, yeah, we're talking
4: down to them. Yeah, or talking down to them. Absolutely. Not. Talking to them like they've got something to offer, not that they're just in the classroom, right? They're out to break things and see what happens when they break it and to blow things up and to explore things and understand how things work. And and I think that that's something that kids are really gonna everybody identifies to that, and and I think it's something that we're we're really missing in our uh, science celebrity uh, market right now, and and I think Dr. Bright just really fits that 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 missing niche, and then the kids, you know, I, I say kids, but they're they're anywhere from like 14 to 18 or so, and and uh, they're young adults really, and. They're really smart. They have some eccentricity, as everyone does, and uh, especially really smart kids. So it's fun to watch them grow and mature, and it's fun to watch them discover things. And that's what Dr. Bright is doing, is discovering the universe through their eyes. And, And you as
3: a reader will get to do that as well. You learn something much better when you teach it than when you just try to learn it yourself. So he's learning as much as they are in a way, but at the same time getting to see their perspective and the way that they approach a topic, which wouldn't necessarily be the way that he did. They have fewer misconceptions, they haven't been trained in the same way that adults perhaps have, so they're going to approach things with fresh eyes. And I hope that that comes across to the reader, that they can throw in their own take on things, that the laws of science might be immutable. But approaches to science are not. Yeah, there's.
4: Uh, you, you can ask five different people how to solve a problem, and they'll come up with five different ways to solve the problem, and and that doesn't mean that they all all five of them are right or all five of them of them are wrong. They're just new approaches, and that's what you see in, in this story. Is the the problems occur? You have these brilliant kids that are being mentored by one of the most brilliant you know mentors they could possibly have, and uh, but he's. Very hands
3: off. He, he points them in the right direction, and he lets them go and explore for themselves.
2: I think that ties into the.
3: When the, you have a fallback position, you fall back. <laughs> the the
2: the time period that we're talking about it, it it's a period of exploration. It's a it's a period of pioneering and a time of boldness. And I, I think it's nice to, at, 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 our, at this particular venture, at this particular jointure, um, it's nice to get stories like that, leading, leading us to a future where, where people are bold um, and problem-solving is uh, just part of everyday life. What, what was the tagline that we have for, uh, for, for the TV show, for the Bright Sparks? We got this we got this we got this yeah we got this right and that, that, that that's the that's the attitude uh that, that that infuses this book um now dom when when you were uh, doing the doing the uh, artwork for this did you have to do uh, research on uh, on what the moon looks like or did, did did travis and jody give you uh give you references
5: no i did some research uh mostly i think it was all um NASA, I think there was a NASA website, and I was studying that. It was basically the the contrast what really struck me is so stark. Now that was obviously going back to the the first illustration, as in I was sort of torn between making something absolutely, literally just black and white, and then having that kind of just slight flexibility. So you are describing a little bit more um, to the viewer. Now, that was something I really wanted to be very careful of because I didn't want people to look at this and obviously sort of with the science back, i saying, well, that's wrong. That, that, that wouldn't work at all. Mm. So I had to be very careful on that. And I, I hope <laughs> that when people see this, that they're going to think, yeah, okay, this could work. You know, obviously a little bit of artistic license. But um, the funny enough, I was just um, thinking about the interior illustration of the crater and you're looking right down into the crater with the bulldozers. And um, I think that was a nice, That was a nice touch to try and keep that quite stark. And in in some ways, having it as an interior illustration, being grayscale, it actually works well anyway because, obviously, the moon and everything, um, unless the buildings are going to be actually painted, it just works. It's a nice touch to it, keeping it grayscale.
3: Ooh,
2: that's a really interesting idea. Jody and Travis, for the the next book, how do the colonists get color into the interior if the exterior is so very stark? I bet you things are going to be very gaudy on the inside. I think
3: it's important to have that. People respond to color, and they feel starved of it if they don't have it. Yeah. So one of the reasons that the, the sparks, uh, most people wear coveralls because it's simple, or rather the, the sparks wear coveralls because it's easy, and if you get acid or if you uh, on them or if you tear them, just replace it with another coverall. But some of them are, are really gaudy. Uh, the youngest one, Daya, tends to wear bright saffron orange and purple, And all of the others have... uh, Dion, the eldest, loves bright colors. He has a pair of bright orange pajamas. And, yeah, they they compensate for it. Uh, One of the other ways they compensate is with music. That Barbara, our, our focus character, is a little bit of a headbanger. She likes loud, raucous music, and it keeps
2: her going. And speaking of color and colorful things, the, uh, there, is a, there is a sequel planned. Can, can you tell us a little bit about the, the, the race and, and some of the spectacle that, that, that goes around that? Dom, this may be news to you, but you're going to be doing the, doing the next cover, so you should take notes. <laughs>
4: <laughs> no, well, before get into that, before you get into that, Tony, I'd like to uh, point out something that uh, Dom just said, that uh, nobody probably caught listening to it when he was looking at painting the or, or doing the illustrations for the crater and he, and he mentioned something about the bulldozers down in the crater Yeah. there's never been a bulldozer invented yet to work in space on the moon or Mars or anywhere else and that's something that we even actually talk about is construction equipment hasn't been invented yet that yeah. will work on the moon okay. it's a hard enough time designing a lunar rover and so it's, it's a lot of fun just thinking about the things that we take for granted here on Earth every day. Anybody wants to go rent a bulldozer? You can go to if there's any place in almost every town you can go rent a bulldozer. Yep. But on the moon, make one actually function on the moon is an extremely complicated engineering feat. So everything is difficult on the moon. But we're talking about a period, say seventy five years to hundred years from now, where at least they have them. Whether or not everybody can just go down the street and rent one or not is a is, is not necessarily the case, but they actually have them for special use and special cases because they're beginning to tame the moon and build this city, this colony on the moon, and spread out. And I, and I think that's something that a lot of people, since we sit every day on Earth, we take it for granted. But think about it being on the moon, and a regular bulldozer
3: is not going to work on the moon. Right. That's fascinating. But drawing these things and saying... Uh, that they will exist, also helps them come into being. Because scientists are inspired by science fiction in the same way that other readers are inspired. And those things come to be because they read about them or thought about them or heard about them. It's like the man who invented the flip phone. He was uh, he was a Star Trek fan, and he said, we've got to have one of these someday. And when he grew up, he became the man who invented one. So we may be inspiring the, the people who are going to create that, that uh, the... the caterpillar tractor uh, earth mover that is someday going to dig out that uh, telescope crater
2: no no, no pressure dom
3: We're actually going to <laughs> <laughs> no, no pressure dom we we know you'll get it just right <laughs> <laughs>
5: thank you <laughs> i was actually going to bring up the star trek uh reference as well um i think that's what you just you just uh, made about the um the phones
4: and you flip the phone it's uh, it's phone? identical yeah well, everybody, everybody gets that because everybody's seen Star Trek, but i like to point out, I, I did a, a, an afterword for uh, when Bane redid uh, Between Planets, Robert Heinlein's uh, book, and I did an analysis on, it, analysis on that book, and I realized, that I did a study, and, and the stealth technology for stealth fighters was actually first mentioned in a paragraph in Between Planets in 1951 by Robert Heinlein, Nine years before the stealth program was created. And and the engineer who started the stealth program says that he had the idea from reading about it in a science fiction novel, and he didn't remember which science fiction novel he had read it in. And everything I can find, that is the only place where stealth technology is mentioned in that time frame. So I hope we do. We're doing sort of the same thing that Robert Heinlein did with Between Planets, is that there may be some little. Obscure thing that we talk about in the city, Jody, like the lake, or or oh, yeah. anything like that 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 people may see in the future. And say, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do that. Absolutely.
3: Who knows what will inspire somebody to say that should exist? I can make that happen.
2: Exactly, and and the fact that you guys are thinking deeply about this and thinking deeply about these problems, um, and 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 putting it into an entertaining, fun story. Um, I think, is, uh, is, is the key to all of that. Um, now, now we're really going to get into fantasy territory, though. Um, if you had to cast the TV show, did you have any actors in mind to, uh, to, to play uh, Dr. Bright and to play the Bright Sparks? How about Barb?
3: Oh, I, I haven't seen the perfect prototype for Barb yet. I'm looking. There are young actors coming up all the time, if if he were just a little younger, the boy who is currently playing Spider Man would be a great Neil, because he's got the sort of enthusiasm I really enjoy. He is he is the brash young teenager to the life. He's he's very good for that. Uh, no, I, I I'd have to think about that. I could think. Of we already played. Right. I wonder, <laughs> and and somebody to do the voice of Leona. I wonder where we can find someone like that. <laughs> I,
2: I I can see you are ready you are ready for the T V show. <laughs> well, if, if our listeners have any suggestions for, for uh for uh, who should play these characters, please do send them in to us. We we would love to hear them.
1: Um <laughs> Oh yeah, that would be great. Fantasy casting. Absolutely. I like that girl, Allie on Austin and Allie on the Disney channel. She'd be a good part.
2: Oh, there we go. Let's see. I did want to talk a little bit about uh, about the sequel. Do you guys want to talk a little bit about what the, uh, the basic concept for that's going to be?
3: Well, we laid the groundwork practically from the beginning of Moonbeam that the original Bright Sparks had a kind of antagonist, the first five before Barbara arrived, a woman called Pam that they just didn't get along with. But there's Sometimes personalities just clash, and somebody might not be the best person to be your friend, but it doesn't mean that they're a bad person. Personalities might not work together, but ideas can, if if you just let your guard down a little bit. The idea that we have for the this, this moon track is going to be a race around the moon, and when you are out in the middle of nowhere, people have to rely on each other whether or not they like one another. So... People are going to have to let their their guard down. That I've heard, there are no atheists in a foxhole, and probably the same thing is true for a spaceship or a bunch of racers out across the surface of the moon. People have to rely on each other, and they have to get rid of their internal prejudices. Because if you won't stop and help somebody, can you rely on someone to help stop and help you?
2: Travis, can you tell us about the uh, the idea for the race? What 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 kind of devices are going to be racing?
4: The idea of the, the, the race is you have to stay on the ground. Uh, you can become airborne only on a, like you were jumping, like a dune buggy does over dunes and things. And that may last a long time because the gravity is one-sixth on the moon than it is on Earth. But uh, one of the things that kind of instilled uh, to me is thinking about when Eisenhower was a, uh, a young, I believe he was a captain at the time, he was given the task of taking a convoy from, one, from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean across the United States. And it took him 30 days to do this. This would have been pre-World War II. And it took him 30 days to get a convoy across the United States because there were no road systems that allowed him to travel uh, the wildernesses across the rivers and so on. And I often thought about that. Well, you know, there's no trees and wildernesses on the moon, but it's filled with... Uh, ravines and and craters and mountains, and and we don't understand a whole bunch about the surface of the moon, and we need to uh, map it extremely well, and we're talking about sending race teams, teams of four or so, in buggies to race around the moon as fast as they can and and to circumnavigate it, and it hasn't been done in this time frame, in in, in, in this story yet, and so these will be the first people to ever drive a vehicle all the way around the moon. And there's only a road, the The biggest road is, a, is an un, unimproved road that goes out to uh, the Aldrinville place in the first book that's only, you know, a couple of days' travel. And, we're and talking it's not about, a
3: particularly good
4: road. <laughs> yeah, and then once they get past that, there is no road. And so they're going to have to depend on uh, navigation systems, they're going to have to depend on at you know, the stars, they're going to have to depend on figuring out how to drive their vehicles around craters and over mountains and so on. So it's it'll be an extremely frontiersman type of race. Kind of like a cross between the the race of the Adirondacks and then the the covered wagons crossing the old west and maybe even Magellan's trip circumnavigating the earth on the ocean.
2: And I'm thinking Speed Racer, a little bit of Speed Racer in there. So <laughs>
4: We've got more than a Texas speed racer in there. (laughs) Interesting, you should bring up speed racer Tony and uh, Jody, and I've kind of had this in the back of our mind for a while. Is and without give too much away, there there is an element of Racer X in one of the characters that you'll kind of see in, in, in this second
2: story. Uh, it's really interesting hearing the, uh, the the origins of this and the inspirations of it. Um, I'm getting some resonances of uh, George Washington, the early George Washington, who was a surveyor before uh, he, he became uh-huh. uh, a military man. Um, so so I, I think that's a really, really exciting uh, premise. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading that. Um so is is there anything that anybody else uh, wants to add? Dom, it sounds like you need to be researching uh, lunar vehicles.
5: <laughs> yes, and I was, just, I was just about to say, this sounds
4: like it's going to be a fantastic cover.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
4: I will tell you, just for an artistic standpoint, uh, before we could carry the story any farther, uh, we needed to design the race buggy that our team would have. And so I had to spend a few days actually doing an engineering drawing of the concept of the uh, race buggy that we call, it, we're, right now we're calling it the Spark Express, that wow. our team will, will drive around the moon. And so when, when it comes time for artwork, I, I will uh, send you uh, uh, the picture, uh, you know, the drawings that I did uh, so we can have engineering details to describe it while we're in the store. He said, you know, the control panel's over here, uh, the, the steps are on this side of it, the windows are here, the wheels look like this, and so on. And uh, I think uh, an artist
3: could take my engineering drawings and, and make something that looks really, really fancy, really fantastic. I,
2: I do have a question. That's so yeah. much
3: fun with the uh, we have we have concept for the other vehicles as well, and all of them are different. The
2: uh, are, are there going to be sponsor stickers like we have in NASCAR?
3: Well, ex- except that they're going to be uh, neon uh, chase lights, and they glow in the dark. Yeah, the stickers <laughs> with big lamps back.
4: Yeah, the adhesives of a sticker would delaminate in the vacuum. Now, they like to rip some metal metallic, ones on or paint something on but, or etch it. But, yeah, we, we like the idea of putting lights and things like that on it.
2: Okay. All right. That's going to be... But, the, yeah, but
4: from, an illustrator's,
5: from an illustrator's point of view, obviously I'll be looking immediately of where could we put the punch color. Um, if, if the overall um, palette is going to be uh, gray... Um, mm-hmm. But then, obviously, it would be nice to have some kind of you could pepper the color, uh, pepper the cover with some, um, some really nice uh, punchy colors. And obviously, you, not to make it garish, of course, but it really would be um, so useful to have that because um, obviously, from a from a, a visual standpoint, that's where you can start working that in the typography as well, using some colors. Yeah, color well, exactly. The,
4: uh, the, the cockpit or the nose of the vehicle like a two-man-sized or two-person-sized bubble that they sit in, and there's all sorts of controls and, uh, you know, screens and things. Uh, there's all, there'll be all sorts of color, 3-D displays, all things happening there. So you've got the gray start to the moon outside. You look in through the bubble, you see them at the controls, and all the color on the control panels and things of that nature inside the buggy would really bring it to life, I think.
2: I, I'm seeing a lot more interior illustrations as well. That's fantastic. All right, does anybody have any uh, final words for our readers?
4: Hope you enjoy it.
2: <laughs> Those are good words. I hope, I,
4: hope they have, I hope they have as much fun uh, reading it as we have had writing it. It's been a blast. Oh, yes, exactly. It
2: has. It's been great
3: fun.
5: And It's been great fun illustrating it, so thank you all. <laughs> oh,
3: well, thank you. It looks terrific.
2: <laughs> all right, well, thanks, everybody, for, for taking the time out. I, I really appreciate it. And Jody and Travis... Get back to writing and Dom will do the research and uh, I will sit back and read what comes in. Sounds like a like a good plan to me.
1: <laughs> this is another entry in Alliance of Equals, a Liaden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior and challenged at every turn by opportunist on their new homeworld of Sherbleek and low on funds, Clan Corval desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, Master Trader Sean Galen and Corville's premier trade ship, Dutiful Passage, is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But reestablishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren’t all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as dutiful passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mount an armed attacks on others of Corval's traders under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with dutiful trader on this unsettling journey is Patty Oskalan, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corville's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age and perhaps her very life is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance
0: of Equals. Hey! Has! The voice was familiar, even welcome, but entirely out of place. Even so near a comrade as Tolly had become, he had no place by her birth. Indeed, should the elder find him, Come on, Has! Rise and shine! Blades and blood. If he kept up in such a manner, he would see himself dead before this day was out, and by her hand, before she obeyed the order to turn the weapon upon herself. She extended an arm, meaning to snatch and stifle him. Oof. Her elbow smacked into a barrier. Her hand smacked her nose hard enough to bring tears. Yeah. Sorry about that. We had to fold you up some to get you into the dock. Gonna take some unkinking to get you out. There was a pause. Be a lot easier if you'd open your eyes and get with the program. The pilot's gonna be needing me back at the board for breakout. And you don't wanna be stuck in there now you're awake. You're awake, aren't you, Haz? Cause if not, maybe I should wait to thank you for saving my life. Recent memory came boiling back then. Tolly, the whistle, the woman striking him with the butt of her gun, opening a gash on his face. The kick of her weapon against her palm as she neutralized the threat to her partner. She opened her eyes. Tali's face was above hers. Tan skin, freckles, even features that she had come to understand soothed Terrans and Liadans alike. His hair was an undistinguished yellow, and his eyes were blue, neither particularly dark nor noticeably pale. At the moment, they were squinted slightly, as if he were looking into a bright light, or straining to see something clearly at a distance. You are yourself again, she demanded. You were not late for your ship. But he had said something just now, had he not, about breakout and the pilot wanting him at his board. I'm myself again, and I made my ship. All because of you, he said, giving her a grin. Come on now, let's get you up on your feet. Some while later, unkinked, on her feet, and in the galley, second hand which half-eaten, has considered what Tolly had told her. Wounded and in danger of her life, she had been brought aboard the ship that had contracted his services and placed in the auto dock. The pilot's mission was of some urgency. Tokul was reluctant to put her lift back and also reluctant so Tolly had it to endanger one in the service of Clan Corval. Pilot Tokel had therefore contacted Captain Robertson herself and obtained her permission for Hazenthal's attachment to the mission. How is it that the captain gave her permission so easily? Hazenthal asked. Tali was leaning against the counter, a mug in one hand, from which he occasionally sipped tea. Pilot Tokel's known to Korval, Tolly said. One of the first things the pilot said to me, once we got you situated, was that this ship doesn't count Korval as trouble. Hazenful thought about that around another bite of handwich. I will make myself known to Pilot Tokel," she said eventually. She is not among the lists of allies which I was given to learn. Also, I should report in Commander Lazardi. But given Tolly's recital of events, Commander Lazardi had likely struck Hazenthal nor Felium from the lists of port security several sure bleak days ago. Captain Robertson being aware of your situation and ours, it wouldn't surprise me if she right away called Commander Liz and explained your leaving so sudden. The captain, of course, understood chain of command, has in full thought, finishing the handwich and reaching for the mug of plain water. It had surely been done, as Tolly said, and already someone else walking her beat. Beside a partner who was not Tolly Jones. She finished the water, stood, and placed the mug into the washer, waiting a moment while Tolly dealt similarly with his mug. "I will," she said again, "make myself known to Pilot Tokol." "Sure thing," Tolly said. "You stay right here. I'll send her in." It might be. Priscilla said, sipping her wine, that Paddy's being prudent. Brunig's rock generated a great many secrets. She might well have locked them behind walls. They were in their private quarters and at their ease, having ruthlessly rearranged schedules to gain two shifts together, saving an emergency call upon the captain naturally. There was also the possibility of an emergency call upon the master trader, but that was not nearly so likely. At least, not until they came out of jump. I spoke to Lena, Priscilla continued. She was reclining on the lounge, her long, slim shape draped in a starry blue robe that bared her breasts a fashion from her homeworld, where Priscilla had been the initiate of a goddess. In comparison, Sean's robe of deep red, broidered with yellow flowers and belted at his waist, was the merest commonplace. He sat on the rug beside the lounge, looking up into her face and her eyes like black diamonds beneath arching black brows. Lena hasn't had another glimpse of this wall, though she's still aware of Paddy shifting the energy raised in the dance. Somewhere, she smiled slightly. She asked me to tell you that her least willing student has become over these last few sessions somewhat more willing. Sean lifted his glass high. Behold me relieved. One naturally wishes one's heir to accumulate accolades, but least willing student of Debreat in the history of the dance is not quite in the line of one's fondest hopes. Priscilla laughed. She already has avid student of Menfriat, she pointed out. There is that. Am I to understand that Lena remains willing to wait to watch with the rest of us, and to hope that the child wakens to her fullness with, shall we say, as little trauma as possible. She'd rather not force Paddy into her power, Priscilla said, her eyes serious. Neither would I, nor I. The healers are in accord. He raised his glass again in salute. Priscilla raised hers. There was a small, sharp clink as the rims kissed, and they drank. A moment only to savor the vintage before Priscilla raised her glass once more. Sean lifted his in echo. To the bright life who would share our lives and our love. We invite you to this time and this place where we will welcome you and treasure you. She drank with a flourish and set the empty glass aside. Sean did the same, though with perhaps more puzzlement than flourish. Priscilla extended a hand. Her skin was cool and smooth. Her fingers pale as cream against his brown palm. The familiar sweep of her aura simultaneously soothed and thrilled him. Priscilla, he ventured. Yes, my love. Are we going to have a child? She smiled, and he did, giddy with her joy. If the goddess is willing, and you are. He bent his head to kiss her hand. Willing? Though laggard, why now, I wonder? A dark thread, rippled through her joy, gone before he could read it. If I say that the goddess came to me in a dream and told me that now is the time, the soul which will come to us as our child is ready, will that make you less willing? He considered that seriously. His respect for Priscilla's faith did not particularly extend to her goddess, whom he regarded as unnecessarily meddlesome. On the other hand, the Delms had made it clear that full nurseries were a priority of the house. Not that the Delms were anything less than meddlesome themselves. However, the thought of holding their child With Priscilla's black eyes and softly curling hair, fair melted him where he sat. He shook his head and smiled wryly. Let us leave it there. I am willing, no, I am eager. Not too eager, I hope, Priscilla said. She swung her legs over the side of the lounge, drawing him to her as she sat up he rose to his knees and kissed an upstanding nipple, the shiver of her delighted lust warming him. Not too eager, she repeated, running her fingers through his hair. She slipped a hand beneath his chin and raised his face. We have ours, she whispered, and kissed him. Paddy was at Runig's Rock, and she was afraid. So much depended on her, on all of them, but she was the only one who was afraid. Quinn was grim, and Silvor serious, but they weren't afraid. They didn't huddle in their beds after lights out, shivering with nothing more than fear. Grandfather Lucan and cousin Corrine were quite matter-of-fact, even when discussing those plans of evacuation, the success of which depended upon them staying behind to hold the enemy, to buy pilots and passengers time to board the ship, time to tumble out into space and be well away. Time bought with Corrine and Lucan's lives, which they very well knew, and yet they were not afraid. Paddy Yosgallan, whose duty was to stand co-pilot, to protect the pilot and the ship and the passengers, Paddy Yosgallan was afraid. Silvor, whose duty was the most terrible of all, to protect the babies, to keep them quiet and warm, fed and calm and under no circumstances, in no conceivable situation, was he to allow them to fall into the hands of their enemies. Silvor carried a pistol, and Grandfather had very carefully explained who those pellets were for, and that Silvor must be very quick and very certain, and that he must not miss when it came to the last shot. Silvor was solemn. He was earnest. Silvor did not want to hurt the babies, his cousins. Certainly, he did not want to hurt himself. But Silvor was not afraid. He absorbed his duty, learned what he must do and the manner of it. He drilled, he danced, and sometimes in the evening, when drills and dance and lessons were done, he would sit and draw pictures of home. Certain of the cats, Jeeves, the East Flower Garden, the Stream, and the Stepping Stones. Of them all, each holding duties far more terrible than her own, only Paddy Yos was afraid. Sometimes in the night, she was so overcome with fear that she cried under the blankets, her fist stuffed in her mouth, lest she wake Quinn, who had sharp ears, even in sleep. Not that Quinn would mock her, but he was her pilot. He would question her ability to do her duty, rightly so. He might properly bring his concern to Grandfather, who would, what? There was no one else to take Paddy's duty grandfather held a third-class license. Cousin Corrine was no pilot at all. She was Quinn's co-pilot. That duty was hers, and hers alone, and she could not let fear cripple her. Ah! The cry woke her, and she sat up, chest heaving with sobs, her face wet with tears. Lights came up, illuminating her familiar quarters on the passage where her screen, stylus, and boots were all floating significantly above the surfaces where they had been resting when she sought her bunk. No, not here, not now. She covered her face with her hands and swallowed, taking a deep breath against the sobs just as she had done the night she had decided, on the rock, what she must do with her fear. That night, she had completed a pilot's breathing exercise, and when the sobs had subsided, she had lain down and run the rainbow, telling herself at the end of the sequence not to sleep but to arise with sharpened senses and go to the practice room. She had done that without waking anyone, and there she had danced. In her mind's eye, she had danced inside her room at the end of the rainbow, and her dancing had built a closet made of stone. She had stepped into the closet and screamed out all her fear and all her tears. When she was empty, she exited and locked the closet behind her. Aboard the passage, with less than two hours until the end of her sleep shift, she could not go to any of the practice rooms. The ship would note her deviation from schedule and alert father or the captain or the officer on duty. She would have to explain herself, and it was the last thing she wanted to tell anyone, least of all father, that she was a coward, and that she had lied to him. So then, shivering but no longer crying, Patty slipped out of her bunk. She glared at her boots, which were floating at about the level of her nose, breathed in and snapped. Behave! They hit the floor with a solid thump. Behind her, she heard the stylus strike the desktop and roll, and her screen settle with a bump. Paddy looked about her quarters, far too cramped here for Menfriat. But it was not, she thought suddenly, too cramped to dance Debreat. For focus, was it? And to make her aware of her intent? Yes, certainly. The closet had weakened since its creation. She would reinforce it, make it so strong that the fear would never break free again. She took a breath, brought her imaginary ball in front of her heart, and called upon her intentions.
1: That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Tony Weiskopf, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz, and a laser pointer capable of taking down small drones and low-flying dragonflies, especially at this time of year when those dragonflies are concerned with uh, lots of conjugal visits, shall we say for use in indicating the road forward to an adventure-starved populace, plus a pink Cadillac full of belly flops, those irregular jelly beans that taste like curiosity itself. For Travis S. Taylor and Jody Lynn Nye, authors of Moonbeam, please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.